Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm. I'm happy, to, always happy to talk to you about the scriptures. I mean, I'm. I'm never going to get tired of that, no matter how tired I am. <laughs> Good man. Always fun to talk about the scriptures. Okay. So why don't we just uh, get straight into it, my friend? Uh, it's been quite a week. We got a couple things we want to talk about, and uh, this is quite a long section. We could really spend a long time on it. But before we go ahead and jump into that, just wanted to remind you all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Okay, so we are in Doctrine and Covenants section 29 today. Just by way of background, we are at the Whitmer home in Fayette, New York, September 1830, September 26, 1830, or I guess the conference that this is before is on the 26th. Now, according to Doctrine and Covenants context by Stephen C. Harper, those in attendance wanted to better understand the prophecy of Isaiah emphasized in the Book of Mormon about how the Lord would bring Zion again. And this is one of the main things Hiram Page claimed to be getting revelations about addressed in section 28, which is also in September of 1830. And further, that revelation was given in the same month, so we're not very far removed from the Lord's response to Hiram Page revelations. And it stands to reason that folks were wanting to know, basically, well, if Hiram Page, if what he said isn't true, then what is true about Zion? What can we know? So there's all this curiosity brewing about Zion, so we're going to get some of that in this section, section 29. Uh, something else that's going to get addressed in here is that folks had different ideas about the nature of Adam's fall, given that Joseph was reading and translating the Bible at this time. From what I've seen, Joseph Smith was probably done with Genesis 1 through 3, and uh, the people who were, I guess, reading that translation had more questions about his translation of the fall. So we're going to be getting some more of that in here as well. We're also going to be hearing the word agency for the first time in uh, the Revelations. So it will be very interesting to also see that we're going to be learning the necessary, I suppose, ingredients for agency later in this chapter. I don't really plan on discussing those, but if anybody is looking for a section that talks about the doctrine of agency, it might be worth noting that section 129 is a good place to start when it comes to investigating the doctrine of agency. And that's all I got for background information for this section. Yeah, that's so great. That's really helpful. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive right into the content. We are getting into, I guess, what is going to be the prologue of section 29, which will comprise of about verses 1 through 6. I don't have too much to say about these uh, verses, but I did want to see, um, well, I just noticed this language that was present in verse 1 and 2, because this is very reminiscent of words that we've seen in Isaiah, particularly the arm of mercy and the imagery of a mm -hmm. hen gathering her chickens. Now, Derek, you've talked about this before, and I'm sure we got some new listeners here that wouldn't mind hearing about uh, your particular commentary on this imagery that the Savior uses, and I'm sure that some of our current listeners wouldn't mind hearing it again either, but just wanted to see if you had any thoughts you wanted to share about these first couple of verses before we really dive in. Yeah, so, so in verse 2, we have, well, let's go back to verse 1. It says, listen to the voice of Jesus Christ, your Redeemer, the great I Am. And I want to talk a little bit about this great I am. Here we have the Lord's voice being one of fervent insistence on authentic identity. This, you may recall, goes back to Exodus 3, 14. This is the appearance uh, in the burning of the, the burning bush to Moses. Moses says, well, who are you? And who am I going to say sent me? And what's your name? And then the Lord says that uh, gives the name I am. Yahweh is the, uh, although we're not really supposed to pronounce it, but that's the traditional pronunciation here. Also, Jehovah. 
it's spelled yod hey vav hey in Hebrew, which is probably the most respectful way of naming that name. But anyway, it's a verbal form related to the verb I am. And so the uh, in Hebrew, it's eyeh asher eyeh. I am who I am is what the Lord says, the Lord's name is. And notice what that says. That is exactly what queer people and trans people have to say all the time. I am who I am. I'm not going to be mm. someone that I'm not. I'm going to be who I am. Mm. And the Lord's name is sacred. Almost everything we do is done in the Lord's name, and the Lord's name is a queer insistence. I'm just going to have to say that. Mm. And then we've got a further description in verse 2 that it says, you know, listen to Jesus Christ, the great I am. And then it says, who will gather his people even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings. Notice these feminine pronouns here. This is really interesting. We have an expansive and capacious imagery of gender and gender roles. Jesus characterizes himself as a mother, a loving mother, a protecting mother, someone who will gather his people even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. So here we have an expansive and capacious imagery of gender and gender roles. Jesus characterizes himself as a mother. We see this in borrowing the language of Matthew 23, 37 and Luke 13, 34. And I just want to say how profound this is. We don't want to just gloss this over as some really powerful feminine imagery for Jesus. I also want to connect this with something said by the Catholic feminist theologian Rosemary Radford Ruther. So in the 1980s, she was trying to examine the question of whether a male savior can save women too. Mm. And that, that's something to think about, right? How can women connect with Jesus the same way men can? Or how, how is that navigated? And what she ends up doing is, in part, imaging Christ as female, uh, using the word Christ, the name Christa, and having a uh, a female Christ, Christa, our sister. And at first, some people might think this is really radical, and maybe it is. But on the other hand, there's a double standard. We have all sorts of images. It's like Jesus is so rich and profound and complicated and multivalent that no one image can capture what Jesus is and did. And we have That's so many point. other images, like the bread of life. Like, we can call Jesus the bread of life, the true vine, the light of the world. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the door of the, the sheepfold. Like, there's room for richness in our imagery about Jesus. I totally think it's okay for people to liken the scriptures unto themselves and refer to um, a female savior, Krista, as one of the images. I'm, I'm fine with that. What do you think about that? I really like that. Uh, to go back to some a point that you made in verse one, um, I'm reading one of your book recommendations that you gave me like a while ago, and uh, I remember that the author made the reference of the great I am being just a simple declaration of their identity without labels, and I just thought it was super interesting that um, that you know Christ made that reference to himself. And how that we, or I guess members of the LGBTQ community, part of the experience or part of queer theology is being able to claim your identity without, or also while not just blurring the lines or blurring the uh, distinctions between genders or between orientations, but completely getting rid of them, completely demolishing them, transgressing conventions by just discarding these labels entirely. And when Jesus Christ introduced himself as the great I am, he was almost, as it were, refusing to conform or refusing to acknowledge, uh, I guess in this context, heteronormative ideas about identity. He was just like, what you mean? Like Jesus was basically saying, or answering Moses' question by saying something along the lines of, what what you mean, tell him who sent you. I'm I'm just me. I am who I am. Tell him that's who sent you. Like, my name or my, like, not to say that names aren't important or that identities don't matter, but just in this moment, Jesus was all, Jesus was very much balking what Moses understood as a conventional way of identifying 
by almost, as it were, choosing not to identify himself by anything more than simply saying, I am me. I am who I am. So I really, I really like that a lot. And I also like the uh, radical part of identifying a female Christ. We, we have all of these ways that we identify Christ that are inanimate or that are like particles or waves of light. Like we identify, or we are chickens. comfortable identifying. Or chickens, yes. We are comfortable identifying Christ with just about everything but the, fem- but the feminine. And uh, that really says a lot about, you know, who we are as people that, uh, that simply a female Christ is so radical, more radical than a hen Christ or a light Christ or a bread Christ or, you know, so... I like that radical interpretation simply because it makes us think a little bit more about how we identify Christ and how we identify with him, especially with what we do in identifying or stating often and emphatically that Christ is identified with those on the margins and we can't Mm -hmm. ignore the Mm -hmm. fact that women are marginalized. So this shouldn't be as radical as it sounds, which is, you know, something you've alluded to, but you know, it is kind of radical because we don't speak of it often. Right, and you know, like I think the question about anatomy is where people want to go when we talk about gender, but if you look at it really, look at Jesus's gender roles. He did not do the stuff that the American stereotypically man does. He didn't have guns, he didn't have swords, he didn't, wasn't a warrior, he wasn't this macho guy, he was um, very different than what we consider a a male to be like he he's not recorded as having a wife he's not recorded as having wife and kids he's not recorded as doing all these things that the american man is supposed to do and it's just really interesting how um i don't want to make it out like well women are stereotypically caring and men aren't because that's a stereotype but what i'm saying is jesus resists the stereotypes of really any stereotypes of men or women he just really is who he is that's what it is i am who i am he is who he is right and that's kind of where we want to leave that and see Mm -hmm. for me having a an expansive imagery of the savior that can save women and men and people of all genders people of all colors like it's kind of like the question is if if you image jesus as white can he be a savior of people of color and that's a question we've already talked about Yes, sir. But yeah, so um, that's all I had for verse two. What do you have on the rest of this prologue? Well, I actually wanted to ask another question. We may not include this in the final episode, but uh, I wanted to ask because something in verse three stood out to me where the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that at this time your sins are forgiven you. Therefore, or so, ye receive these things. But remember to sin no more, lest peril shall come upon you. I felt like there was something here. I wanted to know what the sins were uh, that were spoken of here, because I couldn't really figure those out. Like, is he speaking generally, or is he talking about anything specifically? Because I could not find it if it was something specific. Do you happen to know, Derek? I haven't done research on this, but my guess is it's just the generic sins that everyone is, because at this time, you have a lot of people in the Second Great Awakening wondering how they attain forgiveness. This is what Joseph came to the grove with, and Mm -hmm. you've got all these um, fervent preaching about repentance and faith and forgiveness among all the preachers. And I Mm -hmm. think people were wondering, how do I know? Like, who has the authority to forgive sins? Like, how do I know if I'm saved? And that is the question that everyone in the 19th century America was asking. And I think that's kind of what's going on here. He's like, okay, I've restored the church. You can know for sure that your sins are forgiven because of this. And then it it uh, it goes into, it says, but remember to sin no more lest perils shall come upon you. And then these perils are gonna be described later in this revelation. Yes. Thank you so much for that. 
that actually makes some sense to me. I had a feeling it was something that was more generic, especially considering how much we're going to be talking about agency in this particular section. But I was like, if there's something more here, I want to make sure that I find it and I cannot find it. So thank you for putting my mind at ease consider, uh, concerning that. I'll go ahead and just move on to verse, fi- verse 5 because there is something important I want to talk about in here. Let me read the verse first. This is, again, verse 5. Verse 5. Lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst and am your advocate with the Father, and it is his good will to give you the kingdom. I love the word advocate here because it implies that Christ is on our side and will fight on our behalf. Now, I went to the 1828 dictionary and to, you know, to make sure I understood the definition of advocate appropriately for what Joseph Smith was using it for. And uh, this defines advocate as one who defends, vindicates, or espouses a cause by argument, one who is friendly to as an advocate for peace or the oppressed. Advocates, at least in the legal system, have great knowledge of the law. And we know that if anyone knows the intricacies of God's legal system, it's probably Jesus. But Jesus also has another advantage in that he knows us and he knows our experiences. This is what makes him the perfect advocate or a compassionate advocate. Both in Hebrews 4 and Alma 7, we're told that Christ experienced everything and that he needed to do so in order to know how to succor us. And that includes being an advocate for us. Advocates are invested in us. That's another thing about advocates. Christ, in just the first verse here, told us that he atoned for our sins. I don't think there's a greater buy-in to an investment than an actual atonement of somebody else's sins. I know if I atone for someone's sins that they might escape punishment, I'm doing everything I can to make sure the ruling is in their favor, for lack of a better Mm -hmm, phrase. mm -hmm. Advocates also have power. In verse 2 and 3, he tells us he can gather us and forgive our sins. In the case of Christ, he has an investment that compels him to and a power that lets him plead for us in the face of God's perfect justice that would condemn us all to hell. Christ identifying as an advocate is powerful because it lets us know that he's not just on our team, but the but that he has a vested interest in our success and is the most capable and well-positioned person for the task of helping us obtain eternal life. Uh, what do you what do you think of uh, this label of advocate on Christ? Before I continue, mm, mm-hmm. well, that is drawn from or paralleled to this uh, declaration in First John two verse one. The King uh, yeah. James has, "If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father." Jesus yes, Christ, sir. the righteous. Now, this word advocate in the KJV is translating the Greek word parakletos, which means um, a mediator, an intercessor, a helper. Like etymologically, which you can't put too much weight on that, uh, parakaleo means to call someone to get beside you, para and kaleo. Mm. So this is someone that's summoned to stand by you and to be with you and to advocate for you and someone that's summoned to help. And uh, that's okay. exactly what what here is happening. Jesus comes alongside as an advocate, as a defender, as someone who's going to go to bat for you. Mm. So if we sin, we have someone who's going to intercede for us and plead for us on our behalf, uh, Jesus. Got you. Thank you for sharing. Uh, those references from the from the scriptures that actually use this phrase or that word advocate. I also couldn't help but think of uh, George Lakey's four roles of social change and trying to figure out what else we can learn from Christ's title as an advocate. For those of you who aren't familiar, the four roles according to Lakey are organizer, rebel, helper, and advocate. Not coincidentally, Mm -hmm. Christ embodied all of these at different points of his ministry, but I want to focus on uh, what the role of an advocate is for now, which is to work within institutions to get solutions incorporated into laws and governmental policies, ideally. In other words, to leverage your institutional power and influence 
to work for change on behalf of those who need it most. And Christ most certainly did this on a divine scale. Like we know he didn't have much in the ways of earthly possessions or earthly power, but he had a lot in terms of divine power. And he used that in order to work for our benefit. He literally used his role as the son of God to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And because of that, all of us have a path to not only be cleansed, but to become as he is. Mm -hmm. Now, to uh, more directly identify this role of advocate with, uh, with the church, this would probably look like leaders from the local to general level simply making social change a priority. And it could be as simple as doing what uh, my previous bishop did when he organized a whole sacrament meeting around racism in uh, February. And then actually said something himself in summer of 2020 after George Floyd happened. Now, I know this isn't exactly easy as the uh, tough part of trying to work for social change within an institution is mm -hmm. that often that institution is set up to operate in a manner that's hostile to the changes you want to make. That's hostile to the people you want to help. Uh, Derek, for example, I know you're a Sunday school teacher in your own ward. I don't know how inhibited you feel by uh, the space that you inhabit as a Sunday school teacher. But I know that there's a lot of people that feel that in the positions they occupy, there's only so much they can do without, you know, getting released or getting fired from their jobs. I was thinking specifically of police officers and high ranking law enforcement officials who have tried to work for reform in policing to address police brutality and its disproportionate effect on black folks. But in those attempts, they are not taken seriously, and in some cases, they're professionally or even physically threatened. This is one reason folks are generally reluctant to engage in efforts for social change, because it can disrupt their social, financial, or physical comfort. But if we're not willing to put those things on the line for the sake of the same Christ, who did the same on a much grander scale for the rest of us, then do we get to call ourselves disciples? Wow, that's a really important point. And Jesus' example is one of sacrifice, where he gave yeah. up privilege in order to make things better for those who had yeah. less privilege. Yeah, what is that scripture? Is it in Corinthians, or where, where is it where it says, like, though he were rich, he became poor, that we might be made rich? You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's in Second Corinthians 8 or 9, I think. Okay, thank you. Um, but yeah, this is what it is to be an advocate or this, this is what it is to work for social change anyway. Like it, it's not just the advocates, but everybody is taking on some sort of risk or putting something on the line, putting some degree of comfort, some degree of security on the line as they, uh, work for the benefit of everybody else. And I don't know that there's anybody who stands to lose as much or lose the most, uh, than the rebels and the advocates. So uh, this this is another reason I really like that label of advocate on uh, mm -hmm. Christ because, again, it's just highlighting how invested he is in our well-being. And in the context of getting a forgiveness of our sins, in the context of being chickens under the wing of, you know, under his wing, I, I just like how much this particular word encapsulates the investment and the power that Christ has to forgive us and to plead our case before the Father. Right. And I just want to let people know that this same Greek word is the one that's translated as comforter in John. Um, and this is actually in then ref reference to the Holy Spirit, where he says, and I will oh. give you another comforter, which is a weird word because the, the comforter is the thing that people put on their bed. We don't even use the word comforter that way. Um <laughs> But that's the same word, parakletos, and this comforter uh, will will be sent and come in the name of Christ. Mm. So um, something I'm also thinking about while we're on the subject of advocacy, th this might be a good time, Derek, to say that this past year there has been a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And this week probably saw the worst. Well, it did. It saw the worst mass shooting since the pandemic started, where there were eight people killed, six of whom were Asian women. 
Now, the specific brand of misogyny that Asian women face in this country also needs to be named, and that's a whole other conversation that we need to have. I do want to also I do want to say, though, that racism against Asian Americans, it's not anything new. It's also far more complex than many of us are willing to give it credit for. It's more complex than the Japanese internment mm-hmm. or more complex than the Chinese Exclusion Act. It is mm-hmm. yet another expression of white supremacy that is as old as this country. Now, I mention white supremacy specifically now because, um, you know, I have to speak for black folks. Relations between black and Asian communities has, hasn't has always been great. It's been strained due to ignorance and scarcity of resources, not coincidentally brought on also by white supremacy. But for my black, for my black siblings... Uh, especially, I have to say that regardless of how you might feel about our history in this country, we can't fight white supremacy if we're not willing to fight on behalf of our Asian American siblings. We're not affirmed if they're not affirmed, because at the end of the day, white supremacy is the architect of all racial turmoil that we experience, including that which exists between our communities. So fighting for our Asian brothers and sisters, our Asian siblings, is a necessary piece of fighting white supremacy, a necessary piece of this puzzle to making sure that we make this nation a better place, but also to just living up to our baptismal covenants of mourning those with those that mourn and comforting those that stand in need of comfort, standing as their witnesses at all times, or standing as a witness of Christ at all times and in all things and in all places. This is how we honor them right now. Now, I know a lot of people don't know uh, specifically what it is they can do right now, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But all that said, though anti-Asian racism is another expression of white supremacy, anti-Asian racism has its own unique history that we have to learn about that we might be in the best position to help our Asian American siblings. It's been a few days since this most recent incident, this shooting. But if you're looking to do something to educate yourself, there are already several resources, some of them from folks within our own faith community. Uh, To highlight the latter first, the Mormon Women for Ethical Government recently, uh, I think it was just a day ago as of this recording, but on their Instagram page, you can find a conversation between Stephanie Wong Porter and uh, the best-selling author, Joanna Ho, and I highly recommend it. I think it's just over an hour long. Uh, But like I said, it's just been up a day. You may not have uh, seen it or heard about it yet, but it's the only place that I've seen lifting up the voices of Asian American women so far within our community. Also, it might be appropriate for you to check in with your Asian American friends and colleagues who are mourning. But like I said, after George Floyd, do not ask them to educate you. Do not ask what you can do, because that's putting the onus on them. Demonstrate a minimum level of investment in the relationship you are trying to have with the folks you are checking up on by taking ownership of your own ignorance and your own education instead of expecting someone else to do it for you. And when you make that a priority, I believe you will figure out what it is that you can do. Speaking of which, in addition to checking in with friends and colleagues, which is the relationship part of this, and also in addition to educating yourself, which is the awareness part of this, that kind of, that leaves the action part of this. So in addition to standing up against anti-Asian violence wherever you might see it, uh, there's a website, antiasianviolenceresources.car.co, that has a list of several organizations you could support if that's what you're looking to do. Among them are Hate is a Virus, also mm-hmm. Asian Americans mm-hmm. Advancing Justice, and uh, Armed Patrol Security Guards for Oakland and Chinatown. So there are various organizations that are already doing this work, that have been doing this work uh, for a long time, that if you're looking to donate time or resources to, you can you can do that if you wish. So, um, you know, this isn't really a conversation that Derek and I probably should have at any great extent, but we did feel strongly that we should probably say something Uh, Just given the fact that a big part of what our mission here is at Beyond the Block is centering the voices of marginalized folks. And though this isn't something that we are the best people to Mm -hmm. equip to uh, have a conversation about, we do want to use our platform to, uh, you know, to draw attention to this and as well raise the voices of people that are already having these conversations and people that could really use our help. 
Yeah, I just want to add two more resources to this. One is, and both are by Patrick Cheng. He's an a, a he writes from the Asian American queer perspective. The first is his book mm. Rainbow Theology: Bridging Race, Sexuality, and Spirit, and the second is his commentary on Galatians in the Queer Bible Commentary, where he definitely navigates the Asian American perspective and the queer perspective looking at a text that really was talking about ethnocentrism and racism uh, in Paul's time. And part of it is, is we also, I need to, as a white queer person, name racism in the white queer community. And you would mm. think that, oh, we're, we know what it's like to be oppressed, so we're going to get it right. Nope, that somehow that doesn't work. Satan is, is miraculously powerful on this, divide and conquer. Uh, pitting people against one another. And one thing that Patrick Cheng has said is that if you're queer and Asian, there's almost never a home for you. Because if you're in the white queer community, then you're the Asian one. And then when you're with your Asian community, then you're the queer one. And so all of these intersectionalities need to be navigated and taken into account. So that's pretty much all I have to say on this. And I I don't hear and I probably don't speak as, as much about anti-Asian prejudice and violence as I do about uh, anti-black and anti-Latine. Uh, so, but this, and then same thing with anti-Semitism. Like we have hate crimes about every year, major ones in America against our Jewish siblings. And so all of these things, like you said, are designed by white supremacy to pit ethnic minorities against one another rather than actually dealing with the problem. Um, and for example, I've seen this before, the whole model minority thing, like oh, white man. people white people will tell black people, well, look at the Asians. They're, they're smart and they work hard and they, they're doing well. Why can't you do it? And that is awful yeah. for both Asian yeah. Americans and for black folks in America. It's, yeah. it's a big mess, so don't do that. Do not um, do that. <laughs> I want to move forward in the text and talk a little bit about verse 14 and following. Okay, let's go. So here's what it says. This is verse 14. But behold, I say unto you that before this great day shall come, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall be turned into blood and the stars shall fall from heaven and there shall be greater signs in heaven above and in the earth beneath. And it goes on for several more verses all about these cosmic things that will happen connected symbolically with the second coming, the judgment, things like that. And here's what I want to say, is just like in Acts chapter 2, events of this world are adorned with very strong, vivid language. My main point here is that this vivid language in the scripture about the future is often primarily speaking powerfully into the present rather than fortune-telling about the future. Okay. So I want to take a detour and talk about the concept of drag performance from my oh, uh, all right. background. Yes. Like I'm not a drag performer, but I'm in circles where I love it. It's so great. It's amazing to see, especially if it's done really well. Mm -hmm. And quite often to be dressed in drag is to engage in exaggeration and over the top expression. That's the nature of the art. It's also to be noted that it's a, a performance, right? You are taking on a character. Now, you've done acting, right? Yeah. Okay. So it's about taking on a character. It's about taking on... Costume isn't the right word, but it's an authentic expression of what you're trying to express. And I think much... Here's, here's the brilliant point where it applies to this. I think much of our eschatological language is similarly performative in nature. Let's talk about this word eschatological. Eschatology refers to the last the end times or the last things. And I'll talk more about that later. But what this does is this language takes a point, eschatological language takes a point about the present world and dresses it in drag. It's an ordinary point about our mundane daily living. And it's clothed in strong hyperbolic language as if it's about the future. And we can take this symbolic language seriously, but not literally. And much of this comes down to an issue of scriptural genre. 
If you misunderstand the genre of drag performance, you will be confused, similarly with eschatological language. So let's read that language and ask, what difference does this make? Like, let's read these things in the text about the second coming or about the judgment or about these things and say, well, what difference does this make in your life? Because if it doesn't make a difference in your life, like, what is it there for? It's not about trivia. It's not about giving you, like, an advance uh, advance info on a quiz you're going to get someday. It's not just about the information. It's not about curiosities. It's about something that is practical for how you change your behavior, how you treat people differently based on these concepts. And remember this uh, revelation was given in the midst of a lot of 19th century excitement about the trivia of the second coming. This is where the Adventists come into play. This is where a lot of people, the Millerites, were expecting the second coming at any moment. Even the Latter-day Saints had a lot of that excitement about exactly what's going to happen, all the trivia and all the details. And this is where a good understanding of systematic theology comes in. I'm not a systematic theologian. Uh, my emphasis is biblical and exegetical. And there's two words I want to define for you, protology and eschatology. Protology is the doctrine of the first things, like creation, Adam and Eve, the fall, all of those big weighty things at the beginning of um, time. And then eschatology is the doctrine of the last things, death, resurrection, the second coming, judgment, eternal life, um, eternal damnation, if you're in a tradition that believes in that. And so that's, these are the protology. So here's the, the bottom line of for this for me is, protology and eschatology are really both about the present. That's the, that's the bottom line for this, and I'll, I'll explain a little bit about that. By the way, my word processor does not like the word protology. It changes it to proctology. I am so mad about that. Every time I typed protology, I looked back and it said proctology. That is, I don't wow. know why my MacBook decided that I'm into proctology. I, I just, maybe that's a, I don't know what that's about. More people are probably into proctology than protology right. in defense of your word processor. <laughs> well, man. Which should tell you all you need to know about the people who choose to go into theology as a profession. Well, it, t it tells you a little bit about the computer programmers, I think. Oh, yep, yep. <laughs> well, anyway, I want to talk about the place and the role of systematic theology. A lot of, um, if it's done well, it's not about the trivia. It's not about uh, details. It's about... Yeah. Um, like Gutierrez says, is the uh, it's about the critical reflection on praxis in light of the Word of God. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I have a for a time I was very much influenced by the golden age of Lutheran orthodoxy. Uh, this is the 1600s. Uh, those dogmaticians. And I love the word dogmatician. We don't really use that anymore. But there's this dogmatician named Abraham Kalov, and he said, Theologia est habitus practicus, which means theology is a practical habit or practical aptitude. It's all about practical and pastoral things. It's about the way you live your life. Like every one of these extraneous details, and this is something the dogmatician Johann Gerhard did so well. He would have all of these obscure detailed points about the stereotype is how many angels can dance on a head of a pin. Like, like, what's the nature of the fallen angels? What's the nature of this? Like, all of these really obscure points. Mm -hmm. And he would find, like, how many natures are there in Christ? How many persons are there in the Trinity? How, like, is Jesus, does, is the uh, divine, are the divine attributes communicated to the human nature of Christ or not? Or does it remain separate or not? All of these other points of systematic theology he ends up making them have a real-world impact. It's just brilliant how he does that. It, it's all about the implications for life and ministry, the comfort of the soul, yeah. how you can know that you're saved, how you, you can know that your sins are forgiven. And a lot of these um, Protestant and Catholic debates about these points are rooted in, if they're done right, they're rooted in a concern about the practical. And so my view is that systematic theology is at its best when it focuses on the practical, the daily life of individuals and communities. 
some really great systematic theologians are, of course, James Cone and Dr. Mm -hmm. King. Like a lot of people don't mm -hmm. realize that Dr. King did his PhD in systematic theology. Uh, At Boston University. He did, yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so my point is that our doctrine isn't given to satisfy our inquisitive curiosity about things that are irrelevant to this life. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The best definition I've heard of systematic theology has been something along the lines of figuring out what exactly the Bible, what the implications are of the Bible for how we practice our faith mm -hmm, today. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just really like that a lot. It makes perfect sense that the likes of James Cone, Dr. Martin Luther King, and several other black theologians that I look up to have all done systematic theology. Like that was their primary emphasis when they got their education. Yeah. And so in the LDS context, this is really interesting because systematic theology is all about how these doctrines fit together, how they're interrelated, yeah. um, how all of the scriptures on a particular topic should be harmonized and distilled into dogma. And this is something that mm -hmm. especially Catholics and Protestants have done. They're like, we want to know what the doctrine is. We want to gather all the data, smush it together, homogenize it, and actually make it make sense and and then not yeah. only that but but outline it all and figure out how do all of these doctrines interrelate how they connect to each other especially in philosophical categories now this is not exactly something native to the lds context no nah, and our nah. our theology we have we have doctrine but we don't really have an official systematic theology we don't even a bruce mcconkey's book mormon doctrine <laughs> which uh, um, Zandra says should be called Mormon opinion. <laughs> it's not a work of systematic theology. It is not organized nah. according to any systematic outline. It's literally organized by the alphabet. That's how you know we don't have a systematic theology. Is you can't <laughs> um, you can't organize it that way. And here's the other thing: why we don't exactly have a successful um, chance at a systematic theology is that our self. Uh, our theology is self-consciously incomplete. We can't have mm. a final outline of this is what the doctrine is and this is what the, uh, yeah. the truth is when we have an ongoing line upon line understanding mm -hmm. of ongoing revelation, like this is what we're teaching now. That's yeah. the line we're on. But we're... It's, that's in this section too. Yeah. Like it even says, all my judgments are not given unto men. I don't know if you get more consciously incomplete than that. Exactly, right? So the, there's a lot that's inaccessible to us. And here's here's the other piece of this that I don't know how to explain this really well, but it's all about the correspondence. There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between the data in our sources, like the scriptures or, or modern revelation. There's not a one correspondence between our doctrine and the data because mm -hmm. Some of our doctrine is underdetermined or underdefined. That is, there's not enough data to determine it. And then some of our yeah. doctrine is overdetermined, that there's um, a multiplicity of different voices that are competing for the same uh, doctrinal point. And so what we've got mm -hmm. is the gaps and contradictions in our doctrine. Like where, we, where our doctrine is underdetermined, we have a gap where we don't have enough said about it and then where our doctrine is overdetermined by the sources that's where we have contradictions we've got different voices um mm -hmm. both defining something differently and, and let me just give you an example of a gap and that's heavenly mother we literally have nothing mm -hmm. about heavenly mother explicitly in our standard works right um there's hints of you know a divine feminine there's hints that you know god god's image is male and female but there's no explicit treatment of this in our mm -hmm. standard works so that's a big gap like our doctrine is yeah. underdeveloped and underdetermined here's where there's a contradiction at least for me it has to do with some of our views of the um outer darkness and hell we've got outer darkness and hell in our scriptures but we also have this bold and fervent universalistic tendency among our in our texts as well where it says look everyone's going to have a chance and there's these degrees of glory and you know people might be able to progress out of hell and then we've got the dnc 19 that says eternal punishment actually isn't eternal so we've got some of our doctrine if we take both sides seriously um I hate to say the word contradiction because a lot of logically minded people will say, oh, if it's a contradiction, that means it's wrong or it's, you've, you've 
torn the whole thing down, you've proved it wrong. But no, I think what it's saying is that there's something so profound and complex here that you can't just sanitize it and homogenize it and smush it all together into a systematic. See, that's what a systematic theology would do. It would take all that data and actually kind of harmonize it or compromise and find some type of compromise. And mm-hmm. for me as a scriptural theologian, I'm like, no, let's just let the difficult stuff stand because it's going to speak powerfully to whatever moral or ethical point that it's trying to get across. Like if you speak vividly about hell, that actually means something. Uh, apart from yeah. whether you know whether it's eternal or not, whether it's literal or not, well, all this other stuff, there's a reason, there's a, a pastoral and prophetic reason for that language being there. And I don't wanna kind of homogenize that away. Mm. So, um, let, let's let's talk about what difference this makes. So protology and eschatology for me are actually about the fierce urgency of now, and this is a phrase that I'm borrowing from Dr. King. Okay. It's, um, so protology and eschatology are framed about the past, and we've got some of that here in the, we've got Adam and Eve, we've got the fall in this section too. We've also got the second coming stuff and all of this eschatological language. But for me, protology... And before you get into that... Sorry, Derek, I just wanted to say that before you get into that point, I just wanted to highlight how interesting it is that you talk about urgency when there's all this language that talks about, you know, you you see language like nigh, soon, like Mm -hmm. it's all very urgent in this section about the uh, second coming in the last days and the preparation that needs to take place before it. So I, I just wanted to point out that even in this section, urgency is alluded to while not expressly not expressly named it is alluded to uh as you said as you decide to quote mlk or talk about the urgency of now right so my point is that that this language about the past or the future is really in drag we're, we're talking about something and we're dressing it up as being about the past or about the future uh-huh. uh, but it's really about the fierce urgency of now and and not directly about these other things and, and let's go back to this historical context as you brought up at the beginning. We have a very early church. They're in infancy. They're, they're uh, coming to a conference. They're very curious about a lot of stuff, and they're very curious about the implications of the restoration, like all of mm-hmm. these prophecies in Isaiah unfolding in the now. That's what this is about. It's about the now, or it's well, it's really about yeah. the 1830s, but it's still about the now. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to give two examples. People will say, well, I'm just fudging it, and eschatology is is about the details and trivia of the future, and if you don't believe this, if you don't take it exactly like it's a newspaper account of what's going to happen in all of its details, you know how some of our evangelical friends go wild about the uh, book of Revelation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're caught up in these details, and they really miss some of these things but my point is people will say oh if you don't actually believe this in a particular narrow detailed way if you don't make it about the future if you don't do that then you're then you're missing it or you're not being faithful here's my two counter examples as to why eschatology is really about the present the first one is from dnc 87 verse 6 this is the famous prophecy where joseph predicts the civil war and here's this verse he talks about well you know south carolina is going to rebel and then there's the north against the south and then here he grafts onto that this special eschatological language he says and thus with the sword and by bloodshed and the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn and with famine and plague and earthquake and thunder of heaven and fierce and vivid lightning also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of an almighty god until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations right this is drag this is drag language to me like it that didn't literally happen at the close of the civil war right very exaggerated but it, what it's doing is taking the Civil War that has a momentary uh, impact on people and framing it with eternal significance. And I think that's, that's valid for a prophet to do. That's part of the genre. That's, uh, like we said many times, avoiding genre mistakes is a central component to understanding the scriptures correctly. And here's another, Peter says at Pentecost, where you've got all these marvelous phenomena that are happening, that these were events were fulfilling what was predicted by the prophet Joel. 
And Acts 2 verse 20 says, uh, Peter quotes Joel saying, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And Peter's saying, look, this was fulfilled today. And like, nope, that didn't happen. And so it's about taking this over-the-top drag symbolism that's part of the genre, this exaggerated thing, and taking something normal and clothing it in that special language to make it have a punch. And that's Mm. my point about the language here, that we shouldn't look at this and to calculate the time of the second coming or, or anything like that. It's about how how it changes your behavior and and I didn't even talk about the practical impact of some of this like just real quick let's talk about the resurrection knowing that our bodies are going to be raised changes how we our attitude towards our bodies here how we take care of our bodies how we intervene when there's hate crimes like people's yeah. bodies are real to save people's bodies reflects an appreciation of the resurrection right it affects our views on sexuality, that our bodies are sacred and holy. Our sexuality is given from God, and we should do it respectfully and uh, safely because our bodies are going to be eternal, right? And because death is not the final. There's, there's just so many ways that knowing our eternal destiny of exaltation changes how I treat people in this life. Like, oh, this person is a child of God who will become... Um, just like puppies grow into dogs, the children. what will the children of God grow into? And how will that change how I treat people, knowing their unlimited potential and their divine origin and just the amazingness of our, our doctrine? And so is this systematic theology about, oh, this is just a curiosity just so you know what's going to happen in advance and it's just this detail? Or is it, no, this is about something practical. It's about changing your behavior as Elder Packer said, you know, change, uh, how did he frame it? He said that under, that a study of doctrine will change behavior more than than a study study of behavior will change behavior. Yeah. And so that's kind of my long way around of saying that the the eschatological language here, and even... Uh, because people are going to get caught up in where Adam and Eve historical, where it was the fall, this real, was it literal, like all that. To me, all of this stuff about the, the creation and the end of time is really about the now. And that's probably yeah. the healthiest and most responsible way of taking I'm not denying that there's an origin to the universe and an end to it. Yeah, that's it. But we're not going to understand it on that level until we get there, right? So... Mm-hmm. It's not about just giving us an advanced knowledge because when the glory comes, we're going to be able to understand it so much better than we could even now, right? Like yeah. 1 Corinthians 13 says, right now we know in part. And so what we know isn't just to satisfy our curiosity about what's going to happen because it actually mm-hmm. doesn't. We don't really know for sure. We don't know on the same terms that we one day will. This knowledge is given to us to change how we treat one another, to how we live our life, how we navigate our life in community together. And so I probably should just stop rambling right now because I've already taken up a lot of time. <laughs> but that is no, something man. that I this think great. people will be worried about. And like, how do I take all of this language? So mm-hmm. that's what I have to offer. I love that, man. I, I love the, I love the, I love the now. Uh, mindset and I and I love the drag hermeneutic that you brought in here, man. So, like, I mean, this this is giving me a lot to think about in terms of how I look at you know the resurrection, how I look at you know the past, how I look at the future, how I look at prophecies from now on. So I, I'm just really glad you brought these in here. I heard you talk about drag before in this context, but like getting to hear it in this in this particular one. Um, you know, it was just great to hear it again, and I'm glad our listeners will get to hear it as well. In case they didn't hear you at, uh, where was it? Was it the Colorado Faith Forum? I think that you spoke about this. Right, it was. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, um, thank you again for sharing all that. It was some great stuff. Um, with the time that we have left, I was wondering if we could maybe briefly discuss a phrase, or I guess the whole of verse 30. I'll just go ahead and read this verse. Christ speaking again, but remember that all my judgments are not given unto men. And as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that 
that the first shall be last, and that the last shall be first in all things whatsoever I have created by the word of my power, which is the power of my spirit. Now, a common refrain that can be used to both aid and harm people on the margins is this idea that God hasn't and doesn't have to command in all things. Look at this phrase at the beginning of the verse. Not all my judgments are not given unto men. And this seems like a very, like the way God says this, the way Christ says this, it's as if that is a deliberate thing. Now, just to highlight an example this of this idea that he has given us enough, perhaps, to derive the proper course of action for his children, the first and second great commandment are sufficient for us to affirm the lives and contributions of the oppressed. On the other hand, people will read, a few verses in the Bible, or notice how our anatomy is set up and think that the same justifies patriarchy, misogyny, and LGBTQ phobia and other isms and phobias. What I really like about this verse, though, is the immediate, immediate follow-up that gives the marginalized folks power. These words, quote, as the words have gone forth out of my mouth, even so shall they be fulfilled, that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first in all things. Yes, Close say quote. it. So the last meaning, the last, meaning the marginalized, shall be first, meaning that their plight, their understanding of their identity shall be vindicated. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to put out there the fact that... Uh, it's true. I believe this with all my heart. God has not given us all of his judgments. And I don't know that he really, quote, I don't know that he really, like, I might even argue that he has, and we just haven't figured them out yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel that a big part of why this is given here is because Christ is himself acknowledging, I haven't given you everything that I want you guys to have yet. But a lot of what you have to receive is going to be dependent on your ability to receive it. And I don't think that's coincidental considering that in verse 6, it is written, Whatsoever ye shall ask in faith, being united in prayer, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ye shall receive. Uh, And we've seen this a couple of times in Scripture already. We saw this back in 3 Nephi 27 when, uh, you know, the apostles of the church, the apostles of the uh, American church, as it were, gathered to figure out just what's the what are we supposed to call the name of the church, you know? And we saw this with uh, the three witnesses. We saw that the unity of the witnesses was required before they got a uh, before they got a manifestation. At, at least that was the implication of Martin Harris's withdrawal. Was that once he was once he left. They were able to finally get a manifestation, and then later Joseph Smith and Martin were able to get one themselves. But um, this is this is all to say that I do believe not all judgments are given, but I also believe that we have what we need that we might be able to figure out what all those judgments are. I don't believe that they're all going to be given just on the whim of Christ. I believe that a big part of figuring out what the Lord has in store for us is us working toward it using our agency, which is another big subject of this lesson that we're not going to be able to get to in order to learn who the Lord is and learn what he intends for us. And I believe that this final little caveat that's in verse 30 lets us know where we should be looking for those judgments, where we Mm -hmm, should be mm -hmm. looking for the proper interpretation and the proper understanding of those judgments, which is, the least of these, the last, meaning the marginalized again, shall be first. So I think that when it comes to figuring out what exactly these judgments are, when it comes to people of color, when it comes to women, when it comes to LGBTQ folks, if we feel like the judgments have not been given, I think that this verse tells us what we need to know, which is to give our attention to the last who shall be first, meaning we should be giving our attention and uh, lifting up the voices of people on the margins, the people who have the most to lose, the people mm-hmm. who are directly affected by this stuff. What, what what do you think of those verse of that particular verse? Well, I think this really is a brilliant way of uh, a brilliant application of my point earlier. This language of the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's yes, another instance where our eschatology infuses our ethics in this life with meaning. Ah, right. Yeah, because yeah. it's not about oh, I'm just gonna. You know, just so you know, this is what's going to happen. No, this is, you know this in order to make a difference in this life. And this 
ties dovetails so well with what we see in verse 27 of this section which says and oh, the yeah. righteous shall be gathered on my right hand unto eternal life and the wicked on my left hand I w- will I be ashamed to own before the father and of course this is just an echo of the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25 mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. you know people talk about like Jesus wasn't about social justice like that's literally no. <laughs> that is literally our eschatology. He doesn't make it about did you believe the right things or did you have all the right ordinances? Like did you feed people? Did you clothe people? Did you visit people in prison? Did you do all of this stuff? That's that's what the judgment is. So here's where our eschatology really is about ethics in this life. And it's just another example of where Jesus comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable. There it is again. I just wanted to say something real quick about verses 46 and 47. This is the one that says that little children are redeemed and they cannot sin for power is not given unto Satan to tempt little children until they become accountable. And I just want to name this as um, we've got this double standard. Straight and cisgender identities often appear very strongly before the age of eight. But similarly, LGBTQ identities often appear just as strongly, just as validly, and just as authentically before the age of eight. Many will notice that they're different. Many will insist on their true gender despite how they were gendered at birth. They will say, no, I'm not a boy. No, I'm not a girl. No, I'm, you know, not interested in in having a husband someday. I want to have a wife. Like, they will say things like that before the age of eight. And these feelings, these facts are not from the devil, according to this text. Um, mm. So many kids know that they are queer or trans when they're very young. And this, to me, shows that, that this needs to be taken seriously as part of who they are and not as something the devil infected them with. Yes, sir. Brilliant. I love that. And let's go ahead and wrap up. Uh, before we do, just wanted to let you guys know that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can people find us? You can find us at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. Also on Instagram and Twitter at BTBLDS. And then also on Facebook. Yes, sir. Also, uh, thank you to our new collaborators this week. Really appreciate y'all. If you have not received an invite to our uh, Facebook community group, uh, please reach out to us. I make an effort to make sure everybody gets that invite. Uh, We also appreciate the feedback that you guys have been providing us, the ideas y'all have been giving us for shows and content that we can create. It's really great to have this community. One of the reasons that we wanted to have this community have this show so we could build a community of like-minded believers, people who see, as Derek has already said, that, you know, social justice and all this other stuff we'd be working for is a big part. It's not just uh, compatible with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but, you know, is the gospel Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. And it's uh, great to be in a community with so many people that understand that. And we look forward to uh, growing. So, uh, yeah, if you guys want to be part of uh, mm-hmm. that community that has more direct relationship with us and has a uh, and is able to communicate with us more directly, give us feedback, give us ideas, uh, you guys can support the show in any way you want, whether that be financially or sharing the content. If you want to do it financially, you can go to glow.fm/beyondtheblock uh, to make your contributions, or you can simply share our content on your socials and uh, let us know, and we will let you guys write in. Uh, do we have any events coming up, Derek? A general conference is coming up in just a few weeks. So oh, think snap. about general how, conference. and it, so there's this cultural thing in our church about preparing for general conference, which some people will will find oppressive, but other people you can find it liberating if you figure out how to prepare for general conference in a different way. Like prepare for ways of 
prepare to look at how the conference talks will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And go back and mm-hmm. look at the scriptures and be ready to come into general conference with that mindset, right? Yeah, yeah. No pressure to our friends over at the Faithful Feminists as well, but I really like how y'all made a general conference care kit last year. If y'all doing that again, that'd be dope. We'll be sure to let all of our listeners know too. But uh, yeah, I just thought that was a cool thing that they did in preparation for conference. It's, you know, it's not exactly great that we feel like we have to do stuff like that. But at the same time, whatever resources you guys can find to help you prepare for conference, whether it's the spiritual nourishment you will receive or perhaps the harm or trauma that might be, you know, stirred in you. We hope that you have every resource that you need to, uh, you know, to prepare for conference. And I don't know what Derek and I plan on doing, but we really enjoyed the AMA that we had last year or the just general discussion thread that we had. If we're able, we may do it again this year. Maybe we'll do something different. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it it will be exciting. Yes, it will. Anyway, just want to send a final thank you to uh, Tamara Kemsley, as well as David Doyle, who is working our transcripts, Tamara doing our audio editing. We really appreciate the work that you guys are doing behind the scenes and, uh, you know, just making us, just making this work that we do easier and more accessible for other folks. Thank you very much. And if there's nothing else, we thank you guys all for tuning in this week. Till we meet again next week. Yeah, till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.